Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, for another foray into the world of botanical-style natural aquariums. Would you believe we are closing in on our 25th episode of this podcast? Considering I just started it about a week and a half ago, that's pretty cool. And I really appreciate all of you that have stopped by and and, uh, given us some great feedback on the the podcast. And we're going to just keep improving it and doing some fun features um, in coming weeks and months that I hope you really enjoy. Today, I just want to talk about a concept that we've we've touched on over time here, but we've never really gotten into a tremendous detail amount of detail on, and it might be something that interests you as much as it interests me. It's a, kind of a seasonal thing, if you will. Now, seasons come and go, of course. Uh, water levels in aquatic environments ebb and flow. You know, planet Earth goes through weather cycles. The angles of the sun change. Temperatures rise and fall. You know, fishes face pretty much constant challenges, and they've evolved over eons to meet them through evolution, adaptation, and, you know, their behaviors. So change happens constantly in nature, as we know. And now I talk and write incessantly about the seasonal inundations in Amazonia and elsewhere in the tropical areas of the world, and how they affect the water chemistry, the food sources, and the fish populations. But this stuff just keeps going through my head. I just keep getting new ideas. Now, I wonder why, or how, actually, we as aquarists can apply this information to our own practices. There's something really incredible to me about habitats being completely transformed by the coming and going of water, for example. And the seasonality in these wild aquatic habitats is perhaps the one feature that we as aquarists have yet to fully embrace and study. It's fascinating, it's intriguing, and pretty dramatic in many cases. Uh, Amazonian seasonality, for example, is marked by river level fluctuation, also known as seasonal pulses. And the average annual river, river level fluctuations in an Amazon basin can range anywhere from like 12 to 45 feet, which is about 4 to 15 meters. That's a, that's a big fluctuation. Now, scientists know this because uh, river water level data has been collected in some parts of the Brazilian Amazon for more than a century. The larger Amazon rivers or Amazonian rivers, they fall into what's known as flood pulse and are actually kind of predictable due to the tidal surges and the seasons. And of course, when the water levels rise and they flood, the fish populations are affected in many ways. Think about that. Rivers overflow into the surrounding forests and the plains, turning what was formerly a terrestrial landscape into an aquatic habitat once again. So what can we learn from these seasonal inundations? Well, for one thing, we can observe how they affect the diets of our fishes. Now, in general, fish, detritus, and insects form the most important food resources supporting the fish communities in both the wet and the dry seasons. But the proportions of invertebrates, fruits, and fish are reduced during the low water season. Kind of makes sense. Individual fishes exhibit diet changes between the high and low water areas, high and low water seasons, excuse me, in these areas. So it's kind of an interesting adaptation and possibly maybe an adaptation there for us as aquarists. Think about the results from one study of gut content analysis from herbivorous Amazonian fishes that I read in both the wet and the dry seasons. The consumption of fruits in Mylosoma and Colossum, which are those big 
Tetras, well, Tetras, big kerosens that no one will ever really keep in an aquarium, but they're known to eat fruits and so forth. But the consumptions of fruits were significantly less during the low water periods, and their diet was changed with these materials substituted by plant parts and invertebrates, which were more abundant in their digestive system. Now, fruit eating in general is significantly reduced during the low water period when the fruit sources in the forests are not readily accessible to the fishes. Makes sense. They're not falling out of the trees. During those periods of time, the fruit-eating fishes, also known as fruophores, consume more seeds than they, than they consume fruits, and they supplement their diets with stuff like leaves, detritus, and plankton. Now, interestingly, even though the known grazers like leperinus and, and abramites and fishes like that, they were found to consume a greater proportion of materials like seeds during the low-water season as well. Now, mud and algal growth on the plants, the rocks, submerged trees, etc. is quite abundant in these waters at various times of the year. So you get mud and detritus that are transported via the overflowing rivers into these flooded areas, and they contribute to the forest leaf litter and the other botanical materials, um, creating sort of nutrient sources which contribute to the growth of epiphytic algae, another food for a lot of fishes. Now, during the low water periods, this organic layer helps compensate for the shortage of other food sources. That makes sense, right? When the water's at a high you know, period and the forests are inundated, lots of terrestrial insects fall into the water and they're consumed by the fishes. In general, insects, both terrestrial and aquatic, support a huge community of fishes. And this makes sense. That's why the fish love you know, bloodworms and fruit flies and even the prepared dried foods. The, the one that comes to mind is bug bites. I, I love that food um, because it's their natural food source. So it goes without saying that the importance of insects and fruits, which are essentially derived from the flooded forests, are reduced during the dry season when the fishes are confined to open water and they have to feed on different materials, right? So I can't help but wonder, is part of the key to successfully conditioning and breeding some of these fishes, you know, that are found in these habitats, is, is, is part of that secret altering their diets to mimic the seasonal importance or scarcity of various food items? In other words, feeding more insects at one time of the year and perhaps allowing fishes to graze on detritus and biocover at other times. Is there some advantage? Is is there some genetic programming that, that tells them to feed on certain things a certain time of the year and it stimulates certain hormones that condition them to spawn? Is it possible? I mean, is the concept of creating a sort of a food-producing aquarium complete with detritus and natural mud and an abundance of all this decomposing material, is it a key to creating a more truly realistic feeding dynamic as well as of course an aesthetically functional aquarium as i'm always talking about now i'm fairly certain that this idea will make me even less popular with some of the so-called nature aquarium crowd who in my opinion have sort of appropriated that descriptor while really embracing only one aspect of nature you know plants look i love the look of this stuff as much as anyone but let's face it a truly natural aquarium or one that's going to call itself natural needs to embrace stuff like detritus mud decomposing materials varying you know, water tint and clarity, etc., etc. Stuff that not everybody in the aquarium world wants to do. And I admit the aesthetics might not be everyone's cup of tea, but the possibilities for creating more self-sustaining, ecologically sound microcosms are really numerous, and the potential for benefits for our fishes are quite a few, I would imagine. It goes back to some of the stuff we talked about before, you know, like pre-stocking of food, or at least attempting to foster the growth of like aquatic insects or crustaceans like Daphnia and perhaps some worms that can survive submersion. You know, encouraging the complete decomposition of leaves and botanical materials. You know, allowing bio cover to accumulate on the rocks, the substrate, and the wood within the aquarium. Maybe even utilizing the concept of a refugium, 
Google that one for you, uh, for your for your interest. Um, that's something that we've talked about in the, the marine world for many years. All of these things are worth investigating when we look at them from a functionality perspective and make that mental shift to visualize why a real aquatic habitat looks like this and how it sort of has its own elegance and natural beauty. And it can be every bit as attractive as a super pristine, highly controlled, artificially laid out plant-centric scapes that dominate the minds of pretty much everyone when they hear the words natural and aquarium together these days. Particularly when the function provides benefits for our animals that we wouldn't appreciate or even see otherwise. So really what I'd like to see people do is merge art and nature in a slightly different way. You do that and the results are often pretty amazing. Learning more about the seasonal dynamics of natural aquatic habitats and the ecology of the surrounding terrestrial environments is just one of the really fascinating and compelling areas of study that we can all really get into. Yeah, it requires some study. It requires you to try some new and maybe even some seemingly wacky ideas, you know, like encouraging the accumulation of detritus and epiphytic algal growth, for one thing, and maybe embracing some very different aesthetics overall. You'll endure, you know, potentially murky water, biofilm and wood, and just stuff in the water on occasion. You might even fail a few times in the process, but you also might just create something really special. And that's what happens when you push out into the sort of the frontiers of the hobby. I know some of you have been working on various aspects of this stuff for a long time in your hobby work, and maybe it's time to sort of bring it all together. But the potential, you know, you know, problems be damned, the potential for learning new things about our fishes and perhaps being able to even spawn them more reliably and productively, maybe lessening our reliance on the collection of some perhaps critically endangered or limited wild specimens could be significant. At the very least, the possibilities of learning about the challenges that, you know, that these fragile environments face um, from man's impacts are, are there too, you know, as are the insights that we'll gain by seeing firsthand how fishes have adapted to seasonal changes and have made them part of their life cycle. It's something we've probably never seen in aquariums. Now, I know we've seen before people alter water temperatures and lighting and chemistry and stuff to stimulate spawning. So it's sort of that, but more evolved, right? It's nothing that we haven't done, at least some of the preliminary groundwork on. It's an off-repeated challenge. I toss this out to you, the adventurers, the innovators, and the, the bold practitioners out there of the aquarium hobby. Follow nature's lead whenever possible and see where it takes you. You know, leave no leaf unturned. You know, no piece of wood unstudied. Push out the boundaries and blur the lines between nature and aquarium. Follow the seasons. Stay curious. Stay interested. Stay adventurous. Stay enthusiastic. Stay bold and stay wet. Until next time, I hope we've given you some food for thought. <laughs> this is Scott Fellman. I'll be talking to you real soon. And, and again, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future uh, podcasts, please feel free to just hit me up by either uh, on uh, email at tenantaquatics at gmail.com or through our social media feeds on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again. Have a great day. Bye.